Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. And over these first several weeks here in the month of March 2022, my Opportunity Zones podcast is going to be previewing OZ Pitch Day, which is our upcoming live online event that Opportunity DB is hosting in an effort to showcase several qualified opportunity funds for accredited investors seeking to defer their capital gains into OZ funds. Joining me today is one of our big partners on that event, Mr. Greg Genovese, who is founder and CEO of USG Realty Capital and the Investor's Choice Oz Fund. Greg joins me today from Santa Barbara, California. Greg, how are you doing? And welcome to the show. I'm doing just fine. And thank you very much, Jimmy. Nice to hear from you. Absolutely, Greg. You are a prolific Opportunity Zones podcast guest. I've lost count of how many times you've been on this show. We're getting up close to 200 episodes now. You were one of the first few guests that I ever had on the show way back in early 2019, and you've been on a handful of times since then. So I appreciate you supporting my platform and Opportunity DB, and thank you for coming on once again. I recall seeing about a year ago, Greg, an article in Globe Street on your firm and the new approach that you're taking toward Opportunity Zone investing. Can you tell us a little bit about what that new approach is and how it differs from maybe the old approach or or the approach that others are taking? Yeah, thank you so much. But uh, certainly, Jimmy, and uh, thank you again for having me back on your podcast. And I've been a big fan of yours from the start and happy that myself and others were there at the very beginning. I mean, you've really grown into in my opinion, the number one source for information on all opportunity zones. So I'm really happy to have the opportunity to speak today. But yes, there was an article written around April or May of 2021 regarding our platform. And it's not so much novel as it is uh, just a little bit different in that we really take an investor advocacy point of view to our investing. This particular platform, the Investor's Choice platform, is our fourth fund since the initiative came out in 2018. And the first three funds were single project, you know, kind of larger projects, one outside of Seattle, two in Olympia. And this is our fourth fund with USG Aussie. And uh, what we decided to do was to really be an investor advocate, or at least take it from an investor advocacy uh, point of view. In the first three funds, and then if you look at the other funds in the country during the start of Opportunity Zones till now, the vast majority, including our first programs, were really developer-driven programs. And the developer is the asset manager. There's a lot of vertical integration, which on the surface sounds really good. However, when we went through COVID, uh, a lot of potential conflicts of interest and actual conflicts of interest started to bubble to the surface, which really put the project, the developer, and the investors sort of pitted against themselves sometimes while the costs of the projects began to climb, the performance started to come down, yet there were a lot of fees that still needed to be paid. 
So when we came out with this program, Investor's Choice, there were a few things that we wanted to do to eliminate those conflicts of interest. And that is, we wanted to make sure that we as the sponsor were completely aligned with the investor as their advocate, while also co-partnering with our developer partners at the project level. And that's really what we've done here. And thankfully, we've gotten a lot of great accolades for it from the industry. The Treasury Department and and others has has asked us to comment as far as potential best practices. And so I can go a little deeper into it if you want, but really that's a new approach. It's an investor advocacy, wealth management approach to opportunity zone investing. We are not a third-party manager. We are actually co-partnering with each one of our developer partners and each one of the projects. But again, what makes us really unique is we're really on the side of the investor, and we can do that quantitatively by showing the investors um, um, how we actually will make our revenues alongside them. So we're, we're very much aligned on the investor side. So you're not fully vertically integrated. You're not the asset manager and the capital raiser and the developer. You're really focusing on that asset management portion and that investor advocacy portion. Why in your mind is that better? Can you tell us about the pros and cons of vertical integration versus non-vertical integration? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And by the way, I'm not against vertical integration, but we do hear it a lot in our industry. There's a lot of groups like to say, hey, we're vertically integrated, which is just fine. And I'm all for vertical integration. It's just how are you vertically integrated? And what I mean by that is when you have a timeline that goes out 10 years, if you're the developer, you're the sponsor, you're the equity raiser, you're the asset manager, we like to say there's a lot of cost benefit to that. However, in our opinion, what really counts is where you're aligned on the investor side. So there are times, and if you've done a lot of projects, and this is my 34th year in the industry, with non-traded real estate and doing uh, development projects. But when you're doing development projects, a lot of things come up and you just wanna make sure that you're eliminating any potential conflicts of interest. And so sometimes that vertical integration, when when you're all things to the investor and you have that control over their capital, but also have the control over spending the money as far as the expenses, that can produce a conflict of interest. So I'm not against vertical integration, but if we put ourselves in the wealth manager seat, as we like to be, then we want to make sure that we're aligned with the investor. That said, you also want to make sure that a company like us has the expertise to be able to facilitate each one of these projects and build them on time and to the best benefit of the investors. And that's why we partner with each one of our development partners across the country in in certain and different demographics. So we are allowing the local expert, the local developer to develop the project, but we do co-manage it and do co-partner with them. I want to talk about your pipeline and specific projects that you're working on within your platform a little bit later in the episode. But first, to kind of zoom out, I'd like to get your take on how has the response been to your new approach. It's been about a year since that article was written about you in Globe Street and you started raising some attention. And I think your fund wasn't launched until closer to the end of last year. But what's your response been so far to this new approach of being investor-centric and not being vertically integrated? Yeah, yeah, sure. And you're absolutely right. We didn't really launch until 
I mean, technically speaking, it was June, but by the time we actually were able to hit the streets, it was around August or September. So investors' choice, I'm, I'm not here to necessarily pitch the fund per se, but one of the major benefits to being multi-asset under one umbrella and co-partnering with the developer partner at the project level is that we're focused on smaller projects, not small projects, but smaller projects, projects that need four, eight, maybe $10 million of equity versus the majority of the Opportunity Zone funds out there looking for 20, 30, 50, sometimes up to $100 million. We're much uh, smaller than that. So we have a lot more flexibility. And the other good reason for that is if we ever find ourselves in another COVID situation per se, or any type of situation where the project could potentially be shut down or stopped for any uh, time period, smaller projects have a lot more flexibility to either pivot and also the price point or cost point of keeping those projects tied off is much lower than it would be with a larger project. So in given the fact that you have to hold these projects for 10 years or more, that's a risk that we try to mitigate out for the investors. Let's turn our attention to your open fund now and the platform that you're raising capital for. And and again, you're going to be presenting this on our OZ Pitch Day event, which is coming up on March 29th, 2022, in just a few more weeks here. And for those listening who are interested in learning more about that event and, and want to hear from Greg and our other partners who will be presenting Qualified Opportunity Fund investment options, you can learn more by heading to ozpitchday.com. It's free to register and free to attend. And We'd love uh, as many investors to show up to that as possible. But Greg, the fund or the OZ investment platform that you're going to present that day is the Investor's Choice Oz Fund. What makes that unique and what else can you tell us about it? Sure. And it's sort of to dive right into the fund a little bit now. Again, I just wanted to reiterate to you, you know, as far as our platform, we've always looked at our fund more as a platform first and then a fund second. And I think you had asked earlier about you know our reception. The majority of our equity is actually raised through the family office wealth advisory community. But with the internet and crowdfunding and more and more people going to, let's say, events like yourself, we're starting to see more and more high net worth investors come directly to us. So we're seeing you know anywhere from 25 to 30% of our equity in our $50 million offering. Actually, our offering is expandable to $100 million. We've seen more and more people coming directly to us. But what we've developed is a multi-asset fund. Uh, We currently have five projects around the country that folks can invest in. But we also give the investors a choice between any or all of the development projects. So, for instance, we have an assisted care facility in Bristol, Connecticut, right near ESPN's uh, headquarters. We have a multi-family project in Milwaukee in one of the top opportunity zones in the country. We have a project in Sacramento, California. We have a project in just outside of South San Francisco, right where Candlestick Park uh, used to be, where we're partnering with Lennar Homes. And we have a project in Houston and Las Vegas that will be coming online very, very soon. So when all is said and done, we'll be a portfolio of anywhere from seven to eight projects. But we actually allow our investors to pick and choose the projects they want to be in and the amounts that they want to go into for each one. So you don't have to be in each one of these projects. Number two, each one of the projects are at different levels uh, as far as um, how far along they are. So our top three projects 
have the what's called the guaranteed max price in place. We don't go into anything unless the financing has already been pre-negotiated on the construction loan as well as the permanent financing, and the budgets have been what we call fully baked up. So the projects we go into, we're not looking to deploy the capital um, at some point. We're actually looking to go directly into investments and in projects that are that are ready to go. And then the, the last part of it is, as I mentioned earlier, we actually co-partner with each one of our developers at the project level. And for those on the podcast that may be asking, why do the developers want to do this type of portfolio or this type of platform? It's very simple in that the developers that we focus on used to need $2 million, $4 million, maybe $6 million worth of equity, most of whom have raised that money from friends and family. But they're finding now that they need six, eight, maybe $10 million of equity. And quite frankly, trying to raise it from friends and family is difficult. Number two, if a single investor were to go in and take it out, they lose a lot of control in the development itself. And then it's actually too small for an institutional investor. A group like us comes along and says, your cost of capital is zero. We'll give you 100% of the equity that you need for the development. But... Our rules are you have to co-partner with us so that we can do proper oversight, risk mitigation, and be an investor advocate. That's really how our model works. And if you were to boil it all down, it's really, and it's the only one I've seen in the industry, it's an umbrella fund, smaller projects, recession-resilient asset classes, recession-resilient demographics. And then at the end, we let the investors pick and choose what they'd like to go into. And it's all in one fund dynamic. So an investor could choose to move his or her capital gain into the the umbrella fund, I suppose, and it would get distributed among all the different projects. But maybe the investor wants more concentration in project A or project B, maybe just picking and choosing. Is that the situation more or less? Yeah, exactly. You hit the nail on the head. We do have, I would say, maybe 10% of our equity is what we call our omnibus account. And that is investors that have put their money into the fund itself. And then just basically want to distribute it evenly you know, across the entire platform. But for the most part, investors still want to look at each project. And that's what we really give them the ability to do. And we've had investors that you know, have wanted to stay away from senior living or stay away from assisted care facilities. So we're not forcing them necessarily to be in our assisted care project in Bristol. And they'll go to Milwaukee and to the Sacramento project. Or folks that really do like senior living, they'll go to the Bristol Project. So, again, it's really <laughs> well, somebody once told me it's like a Chinese menu. <laughs> you get to pick and choose what you like almost from an a la carte. And frankly, that really was by design. Number one, the best returns, in our opinion and in our due diligence, the best returns are with these smaller infill projects. And the fact that you have to hold these projects for 10 years means that you want to maximize the demand for that project at the end of 10 years. So therefore, there's a thing called a CapEx, which we all in the industry know about, which is how much money do you actually have to put into the property or, the, or into the project, let's say, at the time you want to sell it to maximize the value. Well, we all have to remember that in 10 years, these projects are going to be the older project. They're not going to be the newest projects. So we focus on being in infill areas, they're gentrifying. We do social impact studies on everything that we do. 
And we want to make sure that in that area in the 10th year, there's going to be enough demand to be able to attract a high premium to sell the, to sell the investment. However, groups like myself aren't going to come out with a fund just to raise four or $5 million. We will to raise 50 or 100 and then spread it out amongst five, six, seven, eight, maybe 10 different five to $10 million projects. To us and to the investor, that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Well, that's one of the unique parts about your fund, your platform is the flexibility that it gives to investors, the ability to kind of pick and choose that menu that you mentioned. So you've, I'm looking at the deck that you presented last year on OZ Pitch Day in fall 2021. I, I, I'm sure you have a few updates for this one coming up, but I see, you know, just to kind of reiterate the types of projects you're looking at, it looks like a lot of multifamily deals. And then the one specialty type of multifamily, if you can call it that, is that senior living center in Bristol. Are there any other asset classes in your pipeline that you're looking at, or do you really want to stick to that resilient multifamily asset class? That's a good question. So really, Jimmy, it comes to two sides. There's a lot of talk these days about recession-resilient asset classes. But I'm 57 years old. I've been through three major recessions myself in this industry. And I can tell you that if you don't pick your demographic right, it doesn't matter that you're in a recession-resilient asset class. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, we're all about the demographic. For instance, Bristol, Connecticut probably would not have been a place that we would have wanted to invest in a multifamily deal. It, it, It is a growing area. There's 12 Fortune 500 companies there, there's ESPN, but it's an older area. So it made a lot of sense for assisted care and there's a big demand for assisted uh, care facilities. So that's why we're in that demographic. And then if you look at the project itself, we have a very good partner in kind care um, there and we've actually started that project already. So if you look at, for instance, our Milwaukee project, that's an area that is growing. The track 113 in Milwaukee, which is in the downtown area is one of the fastest growing areas of not only in the state of Wisconsin, but also in the city of uh, Milwaukee and is actually a top 40 opportunity zone in the country. So these are areas that they're growing very quickly. They're gentrifying at a, what I call an even pace. And so multifamily in these areas makes a lot of sense. But our four main food groups from an asset class standpoint are multifamily infill, I would say senior living, it doesn't have to be assisted care, but we kind of have a little bit of a focus on assisted care. And then storage, it would be number four. And then our fifth, we kind of combine manufactured housing and industrial if we have a large tenant. So those are really our four food groups. And we do have uh, a manufactured housing uh, project and a storage project that's in due diligence right now, but we don't have it uh, actually ready to kick out onto our, into our platform as yet. Good. I'm looking forward to hearing about that one and, and a few of these other projects on, on OZ Pitch Day on March 29th. What about trends, Greg? I want to ask you about trends that you've noticed in the OZ industry. Maybe we can kind of wrap up with that discussion. You know, we're about a little more than four years removed from when the legislation was passed at the end of 2017 and close to four years after all of the zones were finally certified by the Treasury Department. So we've had the marketplace online now for close to four years where people have been able to invest in Opportunity Zone funds. What what are some big trends that you've noticed, some changes you've noticed over that four-year period, and what do you expect in the years to come? Yeah, well, actually, you're touching on, I think, one of the most important points. 
When the Opportunity Zone initiative first hit, as I like to say, everybody and their uncle, you know, wanted to launch a fund. I think we're mature enough now from, you know, early 2018 till now from an industry that I think most investors, most family offices, wealth advisory communities, financial planning community really knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. And a lot of the groups, you know, it came in have actually, you know, exited already. And so who's really left are the groups that, you know, have taken it seriously, have what I call honored the spirit and intent of the initiative and have been successful in their equity raising and partnering with their development partners. And knock on wood, we're one of those people. And But one of the standpoint of changing, we haven't changed very much at all. We see the industry changing. And what I mean by that is from the very start, we believe very strongly that each fund, each project had to honor the spirit and intent of the initiative, meaning that we actually do third-party social impact studies on everything that we do. We want to make sure that whatever we're doing is accretive to the local community, creating a positive social impact, and you have the city and the local economic development alliances on board with you. And so those are some, those are the, that transparency the, and those report, that reporting is something that we've been advocating from the start and we've had them in each one of our programs and we'll continue to do it year after year uh, on each project uh, over the next 10 years. Um, and then as far as the reporting side, which, um, you know, is really a big deal now, and a lot of groups are being, you know, called in to say, you know, what is your reporting? And there's going to be some uh, guidance at some point on that. That's something that we've been advocating uh, from the very start. Third-party oversight, third-party management, um, transparency, um, greater reporting, social impact studies, which brings a full loop to why at the very beginning, we've really been promoting this investor advocate um, platform where we put ourselves in the position as, as the wealth manager for the investor who's there to oversee and manage their equity in each one of these development projects. In, in our opinion, that's what makes us unique uh, unique and special and, and new um, in the opportunity zone world. And, and it's why we're getting, um, you know, the accolades and the traction that we are right now. Very good, Greg. I'm looking forward to hearing more about your fund and seeing your pitch on March 29th at OZ Pitch Day. And again, listeners out there, if you're interested in learning more about OZ Pitch Day, you want to sign up to hear from Greg at the Investor's Choice Oz Fund and from our other partners on that event, you can sign up now. Free registration at ozpitchday.com. And Greg, thanks for joining me today on the show. It's been a pleasure speaking with you as always. Before we go, can you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you and the Investor's Choice Oz Fund. Uh, certainly, and it has been a pleasure, Jimmy, and available to you uh, anytime you and your listeners want or need. For those that would like to take a look at us, you can find us on our website, which is www.investorschoiceoz.com. Fantastic. That's investorschoiceoz.com, investorschoiceoz.com. And you can also check out the show notes for today's episode. As always, on the Opportunity Zones database website, you can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there you will find links to all of the resources that Greg and I discussed on today's show. I'll make sure to link to the Globe Street article we referenced at the top of the show, as well as ozpitchday.com. 
and investorschoiceoz.com. Greg, again, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you.